Hi, welcome to the Kelly Cotrera podcast. Good to have you along today on the show. Toronto's new e-bike pilot program starts today. So we'll talk about these bikes that are available to anyone and can go up to 25 kilometers per hour. What could possibly go wrong? And Airbnb has announced they're banning house parties globally. Will that clean up their image in time for their initial public offering? And back to school is fast approaching. It's somewhat uncertain when the start day is with the province allowing staggered dates. Well, there's also a possible school bus shortage looming. And for Toronto students, school bus service will be phased in. For example, the first week of school, students with special needs will be served. They're the only ones. And then all other eligible students will start receiving transportation services the following week, beginning September 14th. Uh, this is all according to a letter that was sent home by the board to parents. Nancy Daniel is executive director of the Ontario School Bus Association. She joins the show to shed some light on a possible uh, shortage. Nancy, welcome to the show. Is this the situation province-wide or just in the Toronto area? It, it varies from region to region and school board to school board. Um, and what it is is really... The, there is a driver shortage. It seems to be systemic in the industry in terms of attracting drivers to the job. It seems to attract a lot of retirees who are over the age of 60. But the issue we're having this year is a little bit different because of COVID, obviously. And um, it's the number of students per, per uh, school bus that, that's causing some of the drivers to not want to come back to work. So, we we believe that, you know, the fewer the students on the bus, the better in that regard. And um, that will go a long way in helping the drivers wanting to come back to work. Nancy, when it comes to the number of students, how do you know how many students are going to be on the school buses when we actually don't even know how many students are heading back to school yet? Well, again, it depends on the region and the school board. They, they've been doing um, parent surveys over the course of the last two weeks to try to determine how many are going to be in the classroom and how many are going to be opting for student transportation to get there. So there was a two-part questionnaire that went out to parents, and some of those questionnaires are coming back. And there are quite a few uh, parents who were opting to send their students to school, their kids to school, and to use the school buses. So we're starting to see situations in different parts of the province where we're looking at buses that could be at full capacity. And we want to do everything we can to preserve the integrity of the school uh, cohorts, the classroom cohorts, to try to keep as many kids together as possible. It is becoming increasingly difficult. The transportation consortia through the school boards that put together the routes um, are saying that there's going to be a lot of um, buses that are going to be at full capacity. It's my understanding that school buses haven't changed much since I was a kid, so that's not six feet. No, and, you know, if you have one student per seat, it would probably be the ideal scenario and have everybody wearing masks. That's the ideal scenario. There are some school boards out there that are advocating full masking policies so that students from JK right through to, to the end of high school um, they're advocating that the students wear masks if they can, as long as there's no medical condition preventing them from doing so. So would masking it, will also go a long way. Would a staggered start time help? Because that's what we're hearing Lecce is, has agreed to. Absolutely. Everything, every little bit can help, um, you know, alleviate the capacity or the, the number of students per bus. Um, so one step at a time. But we, we are seeking clarity in terms of how many students should be on the bus and to try to preserve the classroom cohorts as much as uh, possible. 
Okay, uh, you've got about 10 seconds left before you have to actually leave us. So um, what is your uh, feeling on, on when we will know definitively if there's going to be a shortage? Well, we do know that there is going to be a, a shortage for sure. It's the extent of the shortage that we have to try to determine at this point, you know, whether it's going to be 10 to 15 percent and whether it will result in delays or um, cancellation of routes. We will probably be in a better position to articulate that next week. All right. Well, we'll hopefully check in with you next week. Nancy, thank you so thank much. You. All right. Have thanks. a great day. Nancy Daniel is executive director of the Ontario School Bus Association. And I imagine because she had a heart out there in that interview that she is uh, in high demand where media um, questions are concerned. And, you know, I get it because that's what we're trying to do here in talk radio and, you know, largely across the board as far as media goes, is trying to answer the questions that you have outstanding and try and alert you to possible problems that could crop up. I mean, I cannot imagine how many normally getting ready for the school year with one kid is enough work. You, you factor in two or three kids. And then if you've got kids in elementary school and then uh, a couple of kids in high school or, you know, you're, you're spanning the different schools, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions that are outstanding. So we're trying to answer them as best we can for you as we get set to possibly send our kids back to school. Are you still maybe making the decision or the decision is, no, that's not happening. It's just too all over the place. But yesterday, Mayor John Tory around this time held a press conference and he helped launch the new e-bike pilot program. This is with Bike Share Toronto and it's part of their 2020 expansion, pedal assisted electric bikes. They're now going to be available to riders across the city with two e-bike charging stations to be installed over the coming weeks. Each e-bike charging station will be able to charge between 20 and 25 bikes at a time. And the charging stations also fully compatible with the rest of the bike share uh, system in the Toronto. This means you'll have manual bikes and e-bikes docked at any station. So for users, that's good because if you don't have any uh, desire to ride an e-bike, you can get your very own a manual bike that you can ride as well at the same docking station. Now, um, here's the specifics. E-bikes will allow users to travel a maximum of 25 kilo- kilometers per hour and can travel up to 70 kilometers without requiring a charge. They will be picked up by operators throughout the day and then they will be charged overnight. This is basically um, to avoid, you know, um, polluting. And so they'll they'll be charging them during off-peak times between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. And then they'll drop them off again. There's no additional cost for cyclists who want to try out one of the e-bikes instead of the manual ones. But Chris, you live in the downtown core. You're already finding it difficult to walk around. Sometimes um, the pedestrian paths and uh, bike paths intersect. And uh, bikers, cyclists sometimes aren't so kind to people that are on foot. Mm-hmm. Oh, my biggest problem, because, you know, a lot of the people who are riding the bike share bikes are people who are not typical bicycle users. So they're on there. They don't feel uh, comfortable biking on the road. So even on streets that have bike lanes, they're riding on the sidewalk. They see a big Mm. white sidewalk and they but then they come up on a group of pedestrians and it's ding, 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 ding. You're dinging next to there's a bike lane right over there. You can quit your dinging right now or you get off your bike. And you walk your bike. That too, yeah. I mean, it's it's there for you to do. Uh, what could possibly go wrong as well is my immediate thought when you've got e-bikes and uh, manual bikes on the same path, you know. 
Uh, Cycle TO's interim executive executive director, Michael Longford, joins the show. Michael, I really wanted to get somebody's take on it who is a cycling advocate on how you feel about this, because I can see there could be some potential problems, but where are you coming from? Sure. Thanks uh, so much for having me on. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're really happy to, Cycle Toronto is really happy to see this expansion and that, you know, the city's going ahead with this pilot, um, you know, the uh, bike share expansion into the suburbs and the announced, uh, these announced 300 e-cycles were sort of announced prior, uh, prior to the pandemic. And, but it's good to see it happen uh, this year and get them out on the road while it's still summer. Okay, and these e-bikes have been introduced in an, in a number of North American cities, Montreal, Calgary, Detroit are using e-bikes. Tell me a little bit about the e-bikes and why you like like the uh, the concept. So, yeah, within the framework of uh, the types of e-cycles that the bike share program will include, these are um, so-called pedal-assist e-bikes. Um, there's lots of different types of electric-powered uh, two-wheeled or three-wheeled or even four-wheeled vehicles, uh, but these are pedal-assist e-bikes, uh, meaning they supply additional power um, to a speed up to 25 kilometers per hour when a rider is already pedaling. Um, so they're not, you know, um, like e-motorcycles, like, you know, the Simon Cowell story that was making around uh, last week, that was actually more of an actual motorcycle. Uh, but these are just give you uh, a bit of an assist. So for, you know, to maybe make your trip a little bit further, for some people who might have mobility issues or maybe an injury, uh, enable to travel a little bit more. And for some people to go up hills, and it gives, you know, um, different sets of the population, like maybe seniors, more options to be able to ride to make those local trips. Chris brought up a point that a lot of people that get on these uh, Bixie bikes, I don't even know if we're calling them Bixie bikes anymore, but Not that's what they were called now. earlier on. Yeah. What are we calling them now? A bike share. Okay, so the manual bikes that the city has as part of their bike share, a lot of people that use them are people that um, aren't avid cyclists. You know, they they don't have their own bikes. They might be tourists. They might not be as confident about not only uh, biking, but also the landscape that they're biking on or where they're going, so they're slightly distracted. Is there any worry about people like that getting onto e-bikes in your mind? Because I, I can see how this now, if something's coming at me at 25 uh, kilometers per hour and someone is distracted, they don't know where they're going, there's potential danger there. I think, you know, uh, distracted uh, drivers or riders of all of all types, um, you know, isn't a good thing for any kind of uh, road safety. Uh, definitely one of the things that we've seen, though, um, in Toronto is, you know, Toronto historically has been very slow to build out new cycling infrastructure like protected bike lanes. Um, this summer, um, you know, we've seen 40 kilometers of new bike lanes uh, being built, including on Danforth, uh, Bloor, and along Avenue Road, where uh, the mayor was biking yesterday. Um, and But it does sometimes take time for people to get used to the fact that these bike lanes are there, especially if they're not part of a connected network. Um, you know, like you're riding on a bike lane for a block and then all of a sudden the bike lane disappears or you make a turn and there's no more, uh, no more bike lane. Not everybody always feels safe riding on the road. So we also think it's really important that, you know, in addition to expanding this bike share program, the city continues to build and expand its network of protected bike lanes, which just makes things safer for everybody. Okay, so if people don't feel confident already, and we're now putting them on e-bikes that um, go uh, up to 25 kilometers per hour, isn't that a dangerous prospect? Shouldn't we wait till we get all the infrastructure down to keep everyone safe? Well, unfortunately, if we wait for the infrastructure uh, to go down at the city of Toronto's rate, you know, that'll be, you know, another uh, 50 years from now. Um, I think one of the things that's very good about this pilot is that, you know, these bikes are speed limited to 25 kilometers per hour. Um you know, most people are sort of able to, um, you know, to easily ride a bike at around 20, 25 kilometers per hour, you know, with 
uh, manual, just manually pedaling. So the speed mm-hmm. differential won't be uh, that high. And um, even just on bike lanes in general, not everybody's always riding the, the same speed and people just get used to making those kinds of accommodations, to slowing, uh, to slowing down, to you know, passing when there's a clear way to do it. So from our perspective, we don't see a lot of concern with this and are actually very happy that these bikes are speed limited for the uh, pedal assist at 25 kilometers per hour. We think that's a very reasonable amount. Michael, I appreciate your insight on this and, and your perspective. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Airbnb is banning house parties, not just in Canada, but worldwide, as it tries to clean up its reputation and comply with coronavirus-related limits on gatherings. The company is based in San Francisco, and it will limit the occupancy of its rental homes to 16 people. It may offer exceptions for boutique hotels and other event venues that are on the Airbnb site, but Airbnb say that they may pursue legal action against guests and hosts who violate the ban. Torben Weiditz is spokesperson for Airbnb Canada. He joins the show now. Welcome to the show, Torben. Good to have you on. Thank you for having us again. Okay, so will this change the Airbnb model, bring it back to its original mandate, which was really home sharing? Um, you know, we don't think so. It's, a, it's another announcement that Airbnb has made. Um, it's one announcement that has been made many times before. Um, and what is happening and what is different today, obviously, is uh, two things. One is the uh, coronavirus really has decimated Airbnb and uh, sunk the company um, right at the point when they wanted to go public, um, they had planned it to go public this year. And they're still going ahead um, with uh, uh, public filings um, that they submitted yesterday to the Securities Commission. So they want to paint rosy pictures to possible investors. Um, but at the same time, we know that in the city of Toronto, for example, we have over 7,000 unsupervised listings that are prone to parties. Um, We had a shooting uh, in Brampton just last week. Um, We had 102 Airbnb-related shootings from um, May 2019 until today. Uh, You know, we know that these violent incidences are related to parties, are related to unsupervised listings operating within our residential communities. And that has nothing to do with home sharing. Um, And Airbnb could get a handle on this situation by simply limiting and complying with the rules and regulations that municipalities have enacted that limit um, Airbnb to people's principal residence, which means that if you and I want to rent out our place um, while we are there or when we go away on vacation, we can do so. But you and I, we're not allowed to buy up or lease up dozens or hundreds of uh, condo units, say, and turn them into ghost hotels. And this is the unsupervised, uh, intransparent, uh, goes to tell economy that creates a lot of these problems. And Airbnb does nothing to address that. And in fact, that's where Airbnb generates its revenue. And they need the numbers in order to attract uh, shareholders um, in their offering. So, you know, we don't really see any, you know, there's, there's nothing there that Airbnb hasn't done in the past and that Airbnb is actually doing to seriously address the situation. Well, they say they're going to start uh, taking people to court. That is a first, um, and that only happened once. And um, again, I think this is just a very desperate attempt to signal to um, potential um, shareholders, um, you know, that that they will do something that is different from what they have done in the past. But again, they filed yesterday. um, The stock options for early investors in the company is running out by November. So they have a 
gun to their head. Um, they have to um, do things uh, in a very desperate way right now. And we see this all over the place. Um, you know, and I don't really think that this changes anything. And again, um, for investors to be attracted to the company, they have to show growth. They have to show revenue. And by, um, you know, you know, they're in a hard position because if they would actually uh, comply with rules and regulations that limit people's ability to their to share places to their own principal address and, and home, it would really reduce their revenue and reduce the number of listings. And they can't do that if they want to be profitable and go on the market. Um, you know, but if they would do so, it would really address the disruptions and it would address the, the party house phenomena. So, you know, they're in the, they're caught uh, in a position where they, they can't really address the issue in a fundamental and substantial way without, you know, scaring away investors and, and uh, showing that their growth numbers are further, uh, you know, down the drain. It seems like, uh, you know, and maybe I'm thinking too innocently here, but Airbnb are victims of their own success. You know, uh, the idea of um, home sharing and apartment sharing uh, was, a, was a sweet idea. And I could see how it originated in San Francisco. Um, but then when they saw you could actually stand to make a lot of money from this idea uh, by competing with the hotel industry and giving people something that uh, is like a home base outside their, their home center, uh, then they started to uh, see that it could make money. And that progressed to, you know, uh, renting out party space. Um, what about the owners of these larger properties? Aren't they concerned about violence that, that could be happening if they rent them out on Airbnb? Um, I'm sure they are. And I'm sure it's not good for anyone's business. Um, but, you know, the, the fact is that in, in dense urban centers, um, the vast majority of revenue is generated by so-called multi-listing hosts. Um, in Toronto, it's, it's close to 80% of the revenue generated on the platform. Um, that is that that is direct result of multi-listing hosts that are offering two up to 60 or 80 properties at any given point in time. And for them, it's a business. Um, you know, they have to rent these places out. They have costs. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they are running a, you know, virtual hotel inventory, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in residential communities and using residential housing stock. And the reason why they are so successful is because they can avoid all kinds of laws uh, and regulations you know you think about labor law you think about um, the landlord tenant act they can you know all the rules and 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 regulations that hotels uh comply with in order to provide a safe and secure um uh, tourist accommodation they offer this same service within a, a legal gray space that uh, is very profitable for people that uh you know, can sort of skirt all kinds of rules and regulations and avoid, you know, paying actually what what uh, the regulated accommodation sector is paying. But that comes with the risk, and that that risk is uh, neighborhood disruptions um, in areas that were never planned, built, zoned, designed um, as hotel stock. Um, you know, and and these uses are incompatible. And if you and I would live next to a dedicated short-term rental. Um, that has frequent uh, large crowds, uh, you know, partying on the weekends or even during the week, like we would not be able to enjoy our own, you know, home. Uh, we would oh, clearly you stay. listen to the show then. You, you know that I would go absolutely oh. um, insane <laughs> with that beside me. Yeah, I mean, uh, That just wouldn't be on. 
anyone would. And But there are very yeah. limited tools to actually deal with this because Airbnb does not make it easy to actually deal with these party phenomena. And in Toronto, if you go into buildings like 300 Front Street West and talk to actual residents there, they have been uh, confronted with parties throughout the entire COVID crisis. Um, and. So the, the takeaway from this, Torben, is that um, Airbnb is banning house parties worldwide, but you're not buying what they're selling. You don't think they're going to um, enforce the regulations. You think this is all about the initial public offering? Oh, 100%. And they, they need to do something. And they are in a very tough spot right now, uh, you know, losing business left, right and center and, uh, you know, still having to attract investors in order to not lose, uh, you know, stock options um, for the early people that, that supported the company. So you know, they, they are doing all kinds of announcement and weird partnerships, yep. and you know, but at the end of the day, it's performative and there's nothing of substance. Torben, I want to thank you for your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Have a good day. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cotrera podcast. Join me weekdays, nine till noon, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.